Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side in the wee hours of April 1st, 2023. But unfortunately, nothing I'm going to be ranting about tonight is an April Fool's joke. If only. So, uh, Putin says that Russia is going to station nuclear weapons in Belarus, as you may have heard. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced plans on March 25th to deploy tactical nuclear weapons in neighboring Belarus, supposedly in response to the United Kingdom's decision to provide Ukraine with armor-piercing shells made with depleted uranium, construction of storage facilities for Russian warheads in Belarus is to be completed by July 1st. Now, before we zoom out for the geopolitical perspective, which is what most everyone is talking about, let's first take a look at the Belarusian context for all of this. Belarus was one of the three countries, other than Russia, that had Soviet nuclear warheads on its territory at the time of the collapse of the USSR in 1991, along with Ukraine and Kazakhstan. All three turned the weapons back over to Russia and declared themselves nuclear-free zones. In the case of Ukraine, this was done under terms of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, in which Russia pledged to respect Ukraine's borders and sovereignty, terms of course now unilaterally abrogated by Russia since 2014, but Belarus and Russia followed similar trajectories toward authoritarianism, with Belarus actually in the lead. Russia, as been led by one strongman, Vladimir Putin, continuously since 1999, and he's only now, over the course of the last year since the full-on invasion of Ukraine, been getting around to establishing a full-on dictatorship within Russia. Belarus has been under one strongman, Alexander Lukashenko, since 1994 and it has pretty much been a dictatorship from the start. Lukashenko was long known as Europe's last dictator, although now Putin has caught up with him, and uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary is not close behind. Lukashenko and Putin have remained close, and become closer as Putin has become more authoritarian. There has even been an initiative over the past years for Russia and Belarus to form a union, a first step toward rebuilding the Russian Empire, although little ego spats between Putin and Lukashenko have prevented the consolidation of this plan. Lukashenko has not sent troops into Ukraine, but allowed Putin to use Belarus as a staging ground for the invasion last year, with thousands of Russian troops amassing in Belarusian territory for the failed offensive on Kyiv. 
There have been periodic waves of protest over Lukashenko's farcical and choreographed re-elections over the years, most significantly in 2020, which was put down in a wave of harsh repression since then, in which tens of thousands of people, mostly peaceful protesters, have been arbitrarily detained, according to a report issued just last week, March 21st, by the UN Human Rights Council, opposition leader Sviatlana Tsikhanouskaya, whose electoral victory was evidently stolen in 2020 and who is now exiled in Lithuania, says that Belarus is under a hybrid occupation by Russia and the country's own Russian-aligned apparatus. But there is an underground resistance movement emerging in Belarus now, calling for non-cooperation with the regime and the defection of military troops. And it is even claimed credit for the sabotage of rail lines to slow the passage of Russian war material through Belarus into Ukraine. This has received very little attention, but we've been following it on countervortex.org. All right, now let's uh, pull out for the regional view and uh, deconstruct some of the propaganda. On March 21st, just a few days before his Belarus announcement, Putin said Russia would respond accordingly if Ukraine gets depleted uranium shells from the UK, claiming that they have a nuclear component, quote, unquote. So this was his justification for the Belarus move. Not to belabor the obvious, but this is especially ominous in light of the repeated blatant nuclear threats from the Putin regime. To cite but the most recent, Russia just threatened to nuke the Netherlands. Yes, really. On March 20th, the deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council and former president, Dmitry Medvedev, responded to the International Criminal Court issuing a warrant for Putin on war crimes charges by writing on social media, quote, it's quite possible to imagine a surgical application of a hypersonic onyx from a Russian ship in the North Sea on the Hague courthouse. So judges, look carefully to the sky, end quote. Okay, the onyx is the Russian equivalent of the cruise missile, and of course, the Hague is the city in the Netherlands where the International Criminal Court is based. So, a very unambiguous threat to nuke the Netherlands. Don't blame me. He said it, not me. Now, it should be noted that the U.S., like Russia, does not recognize the International Criminal Court and is very unhappy that the ICC has opened an investigation into the Afghanistan war. And in 2002, President George Bush signed the American Service Members Protection Act, 
which prohibits U.S. cooperation with the International Criminal Court in any case against U.S. officials, and also includes a provision authorizing the use of military force to, quote, liberate any American citizen held by the court, unquote, leading the law to be dubbed by critics the Invade the Hague Act, (laughs) but certainly threatening to nuke the Hague is taking things to a new level. Now, what is depleted uranium? Depleted uranium is a byproduct of the enriched uranium used in nuclear reactors and the production of nuclear warheads. It is considerably less radioactive than either enriched uranium or uranium ore, but it is still radioactive. It is believed to be responsible for a spike in cancers and birth defects in Iraq since the U.S. invasion of 20 years ago, with the city of Fallujah, the scene of fierce fighting between the U.S. and insurgents, being especially impacted. And it was reported in 2010 that Iraq's Ministry for Human Rights was preparing a lawsuit against the U.S. and U.K., over their use of depleted uranium in the country. I'm not sure if this ever happened, because I wasn't able to find any subsequent stories on the case, but the U.S. and U.K. are said to have dropped nearly 2,000 tons of depleted uranium shells and bombs on Iraqi soil following the 2003 invasion. So, yeah, depleted uranium is sinister stuff. And I fear the land and water of Ukraine could be contaminated for years to come if this stuff gets thrown around. But there are a couple of things that need to be said in this regard. First, it must be kept in mind why the Ukrainian military wants this stuff. They need to rip through the armor of Russian tanks in order to defend and liberate their country. That's the most pressing and urgent thing, obviously. So, if you don't want depleted uranium going to Ukraine, tell Vladimir Putin to call off his tanks. Second, could we please keep in mind that Russia is itself already using depleted uranium in Ukraine? This is asserted by the Ukrainian armed forces on the basis of artillery captured from Russian forces and it is virtually admitted by Moscow. From the Russian state news agency TASS, December 20th, 2018, Russia's upgraded T-80BV tank to feature capability of firing depleted uranium shells. Dateline Moscow. Russia's T-80BV main battle tank has been upgraded to feature the capability of firing depleted uranium shells the defense ministry said. A ministry bulletin notes that the T-80BVM, the letter M stands for modernized, features the loading mechanism for the Svinets-1 and Svinets-2 munitions. The Svinets-1 armor-piercing projectile has a core made of tungsten carbide 
while the Svinich II features a uranium alloy core. End quote. Thus reported the damn Kremlin's own news service four years ago. So, if use of depleted uranium represents a nuclear escalation, Russia has already taken that step, presumably for over a year now. And Russia has also, lest we forget, been engaging in the most reckless and cynical nuclear escalation at the Zaporizhia power plant, which has been illegally occupied by Russian forces since early in the war, with the technicians being forced to operate the plant at gunpoint under the most stressful and abusive conditions, and with the complex actually coming under artillery fire, with each side blaming the other, of course, the plant was finally shut down in September, with all six reactors currently inactive, but the plant still needs electricity to operate the cooling systems and prevent the meltdown. And the electricity has been repeatedly cut off amid the fighting, with the plant having to rely on emergency diesel generators to power its cooling systems and prevent a catastrophic meltdown. International Atomic Energy Agency Director General Rafael Grossi said just this week on a visit to Ukraine, quote, each time we are rolling the dice. And if we allow this to continue time after time, then one day our luck will run out, unquote. But Russia refuses to relinquish the plant and claims to have annexed it, gambling with the future of Ukraine and potentially all Eastern Europe and the Black Sea and beyond if something on the order of Chernobyl or worse were to happen. So Russia is essentially using the threat of catastrophic meltdown at Europe's biggest nuclear plant, by the way, as a weapon against Ukraine. Definitely a very significant step on the ladder of nuclear escalation. And finally, implying that there is any remote equivalency between depleted uranium shells and nuclear warheads is some transparent bullshit. Okay, the next question that needs some clarity. What are tactical nuclear weapons? Basically, nuclear weapons fall into three categories. First, strategic, generally placed on ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, which can go across the planet and carry a very large warhead or multiple warheads, city busters, so to speak. Then you've got the intermediate range weapons, such as the cruise missile, which can span a continent and generally carries a smaller warhead. And then tactical weapons, generally on missiles with a range of a couple of hundred miles, with a smaller warhead still, a so-called low-yield warhead, basically for battlefield use, like lobbing across the border from Belarus to Ukraine, I say, biting my tongue. Strategic and intermediate-range weapons have been subject to arms control agreements between Moscow and Washington, now mostly abandoned due to the past several years of backsliding under Putin and Trump, 
While tactical weapons never have been limited by any such pact, the U.S. and Russia each currently have around 4,000 strategic weapons and perhaps 2,000 tactical. Numbers of both are greatly reduced since the height of the Cold War, but there's still more than enough to destroy the world if they were all used. More about this later. Intermediate-range nuclear weapons were barred from Europe under the 1987 INF Treaty, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which both the U.S. and Russia formally abandoned in 2019. Ah, progress. Now, there's been a lot of vagueness about exactly what kind of tactical weapons Putin is talking about placing in Belarus, or how many, or whether the warheads would be on missiles or artillery or on gravity bombs to be loaded onto planes. But it should be noted, and unfortunately, media reports have largely failed to note this, that back in December, Russia deployed Iskander tactical range missiles in Belarus, not armed with nuclear warheads. But the Iskander is definitely nuclear capable. So it is likely that the idea is to load nuclear warheads onto those missiles. It should also be noted that way back in 2016, Moscow deployed Iskander missiles in Kaliningrad, the Russian exclave between Poland and Lithuania, which is further from Ukraine than Belarus is, but closer to Central Europe and NATO's eastern borders. This was one of the developments that led to the abandonment of the INF Treaty, along with the U.S. deploying its new missile defense system in Poland and Romania, and both sides accusing the other of violating the treaty, of course. Although the U.S. so-called missile defense system installed in Poland and Romania is not nuclear, we should make clear, it's also unclear if those Iskander missiles in Kaliningrad are nuclear-armed, although they are certainly nuclear-capable. Putin is saying that by placing tactical nukes in Belarus, he's only doing what the U.S. is doing, placing tactical nukes in the territory of an ally on the European continent. Is this true? Well, sort of, yes. It is estimated that there are some 100 U.S. nuclear weapons on six bases across five NATO member states. Klein Brogel in Belgium, Buchel Air Base in Germany, Aviano and Getty Air Bases in Italy, Volkel Air Base in the Netherlands, and Insirlik in Turkey. Ultimate command of these weapons lies with the U.S., but any decision to launch them would be jointly made by NATO. Critically, these warheads are not deployed on missiles, artillery, or aircraft. They are kept in underground vaults, and the codes to access them remain in U.S. hands. To be used, they would have to be loaded onto warplanes and dropped as gravity bombs. The U.S. did have missile-launched tactical nuclear warheads on NATO bases in Europe, 
back during the Cold War, but they were all removed in the 1980s. So, yes, the U.S. does have tactical nuclear weapons in Europe, but if we are to assume that Russia is to deploy nuclear-armed Iskander missiles in Belarus, that would certainly be a far greater degree of readiness. They could be fired at the press of a button following a decision made by one man in Moscow, Vladimir Putin. And furthermore, just today, March 31st, Lukashenko actually threatened to have Russian ICBMs deployed in Belarus. He said, and I quote, Putin and I will decide to introduce here, if necessary, strategic weapons. And they must understand this, these scoundrels abroad, who today are trying to blow us up from inside and outside. We will protect our sovereignty and independence by any means necessary, including through the nuclear arsenal. End quote. How comforting. Even more comforting is that back in March of last year, just as the Ukraine invasion was getting underway, Belarus held a completely controlled referendum to approve constitutional changes that included dropping the country's nuclear-free status. On the eve of the vote, Lukashenko expressed his willingness to redeploy nuclear arms in the country's territories, saying, quote, If the West transfers nuclear weapons to Poland or Lithuania to our borders, then I will turn to Putin to bring back the nuclear weapons that I gave away without any conditions. End quote. And now it seems that is indeed coming to pass without NATO having transferred nuclear weapons to Poland or Lithuania. Now for some perspective on the notion that tactical nukes are low yield. Because when you're talking about nukes, terms like low yield can be very deceiving. Now, the yield of strategic weapons is measured in megatons. That is the equivalent to one million tons of TNT, whereas tactical nukes are measured in kilotons, equivalent to a thousand tons of TNT. Tactical warheads are generally between one and 50 kilotons. For reference, the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima was 15 kilotons, and that at Nagasaki was 25 kilotons. So among the most modest nuclear weapons that we have today are on the scale of the weapons that shocked the world back in August 1945. Now, I just did a little experiment at the NukeMap webpage, which is online at the site nuclearsecrecy.com, where you can place a hypothetical detonation with a predetermined yield anywhere on a map of the world, or at least its major cities, and see what the damage would be. So I went with a 15-kiloton blast in Manhattan's financial district to see if I'd be likely to survive up here in the East Village. And of course, the financial district would be within the fireball radius and completely incinerated. The 
heavy blast damage radius, in which just about all buildings are destroyed, would reach to about City Hall. The radiation radius, in which just about everybody dies of radiation poisoning, would reach up to about Canal Street. The thermal radiation radius, causing near-universal third-degree burns, would reach to about Houston Street, so just a couple of blocks south of my apartment. I would be well within the light blast damage radius, which would extend as far north as Washington Square. So my building might remain standing, but it would be kind of a mess, and I would be quite likely gravely wounded if, in fact, I survived. And 50 kilotons, the upper range of a tactical warhead, well, then the thermal radiation radius would extend to Washington Square and the light blast damage radius all the way up to Midtown and to Red Hook in the south, Williamsburg in the east, and Jersey City in the west. So, yeah, I'd basically be a goner. But the real significance of the use of tactical nuclear weapons, again, I feel like I should bite my tongue when I say that, is the precedent that would be set for the use of nuclear weapons in war for the first time since August 1945, which would be the crossing of a moral threshold. Now, that threshold has already been approached over the past 20 years through the repeated destruction or near destruction of cities with conventional weapons, Grozny, Aleppo, and now Mariupol at the hands of Russia, Fallujah and Raqqa at the hands of the United States, and certainly by the Bashar Assad regime's serial use of chemical weapons to most deadly effect at Gouda in August of 2013, all of this has normalized mass destruction and made the use of nuclear weapons less unthinkable. The writer Leopold Kor postulated a law of diminishing sensitivity by which the scale of atrocities paradoxically reduces the perpetrator's sense of guilt. And this is where the often problematic notion of a slippery slope, I think, unfortunately, has some merit. And it is going to take some real courage and unflinching resolution on the part of the human race to provide some resistance at what I fear is our current slippery slope toward unparalleled catastrophe, in Einstein's famous words. So the risk of a full-on strategic nuclear exchange, which would basically mean the end of the world, or at least of human civilization, is, I think, pretty clearly great, far greater now than it was during the Cold War, or perhaps we should say the last Cold War, although the current one, unfortunately, isn't very cold, entirely too hot. And I'll recall that the 1987 INF Treaty, the first step toward the de-escalation of the last Cold War, followed the Euro missile protests 
mass and militant anti-nuclear demonstrations in Europe, particularly in the United Kingdom, the Netherlands, and West Germany, against the U.S. stationing of cruise and Pershing missiles in those countries in response to the Soviet Union placing its SS-20 intermediate-range missiles in European Russia. But the stakes are a lot higher today, with a land war now actually underway in Europe. I will also note that there were elements of the Euromissile protesters in the West, at least, who resisted the lore of campism, a near-universal malady on the left today, but on the contrary sought to establish ties of solidarity with the anti-nuclear and anti-militarist dissidents in the USSR and the Warsaw Pact nations, who were obviously facing a far more difficult situation. So I will close by invoking the imprisoned Belarusian activist, Alice Bialyatsky, who last year won the Nobel Peace Prize jointly with the Russian human rights group Memorial, which has now been ordered closed by Putin. A Belarusian court on March 3rd sentenced Bialyatsky, chair of the Vyazna Human Rights Center, to 10 years in prison for attempting to overthrow the government through his apparent involvement in anti-government demonstrations. Three other prominent activists received between seven and nine years in the joint trial. The verdict received international condemnation, including from the United States, the European Union, and the United Nations. In a similar mass trial, five exiled opposition figures on March 6 were um, sentenced in absentia to between 12 and 18 years for high treason and other charges. Among the two receiving 18 years is Svetlana Tsitskanuskaya, leader of the Belarusian opposition, now exiled in Lithuania. And these are the voices that are on the front line of the struggle for human survival at this moment. And I acknowledge that they are looking to the West for support and succor. And certainly, resisting campism is a much more difficult proposition now, with the stakes so high and so imminent and the world situation so polarized. But it also has to be acknowledged that the West is on the right side now in Ukraine and Belarus. Just as Moscow was on the right side in Spain in the 1930s, Vietnam in the 1960s, and Nicaragua in the 1980s. Life is complicated. And I'll also add that there are anarchist elements among the opposition in Belarus, with no illusions about the West whatsoever. And much is riding at this moment for the future of the human race on the emergence of a real resistance movement in Belarus. We will be watching closely on the Counter Vortex. This has been the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Please support us on Patreon.
even a dollar per weekly podcast would help keep us going. Patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.